You're watching Deprogrammed. This is the New Culture Forum's latest show, committed to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity, particularly among the young. My name is Harrison Pitt. I'm a senior editor at the European Conservative, and I'm thrilled to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest this week, James Orr, Associate Professor of Philosophy of Religion at the University of Cambridge and the UK Chair of the Edmund Burke Foundation. Now, James, as well as being a man of thought, you're also a man of action of sorts. You're involved in all sorts of institutions and initiatives to restore the fortunes of genuine conservatism in this country. Uh, despite the, the doom and gloom of the last two or three years or so, do you remain an optimistic fellow? Uh, long term, I'm an optimist. Uh, things are no doubt dark at the moment, and uh, I don't go in for talk of a sort of civilizational twilight, but there is a lot of twilight talk in the air at the moment. But uh, dawn comes after dusk, and um, you know, the, I think we often overrate the place of the contingent in mm. human history. And we, history turns on a dime. And one of the things that for all of our mastery of technology and science and so on and so forth, we are terrible pro prognosticators. Mm -hmm. We are terrible at anticipating the future. And uh, we often rely too much on history as a guide to what's going to happen. History does not repeat itself. It sometimes rhymes, but we often don't get the, we don't predict the rhymes very well. We, can't, we can only see the rhymes really in retrospect. Mm. I sometimes use the example of, you know, imagine being at a dinner party in East Berlin in January 1989, mm. or a spam party, or whatever it is you ate over dinner in January, <laughs> well, indeed, yes. in East Berlin in 1989, and imagine somebody had turned to you and said, in 10 months' time, all this will be over. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the reaction would have been, you're certifiable. Do, do you not understand? You know, don't, you know shut up. <laughs> We're being listened to. Well, indeed, yes. Walls have ears. Stasi's got your number. I mean, look, maybe that's an exaggeration. The rumblings were clear in 89. We'd seen some lots of sort of tectonic shifts in Poland, the solidarity movement, and, you know, things were beginning to mm -hmm. crack, Glasnost, Perestroika, and so on. But mm -hmm. I, I think uh, we, it's very easy for the pessimists to uh, overestimate um, uh, the course of, the fixity of the course of history. Um, and so we need to... Um, uh, be open to radical, rapid change. And notice, I mean, I, I use that example deliberately because what was the case, what was the situation in early 1989 in Eastern Europe? Well, a decrepit, decadent empire of sorts, uh, propped up by an ideology that was brittle, fragile, nobody really believed in. Um, and therefore, I think the conditions were right for the end to when it when the cracks really did start to appear. The end comes much much faster than you think. Mm. This is often the case with groupthink. You know, it's the so-called spiral of silence effect. Once you know groupthink, it, once the costs sh of a, a shift, once the incentive structures shift just a little bit, once you've got enough little boys in the crowd ready to scream mm -hmm. that the emperor's got no clothes, suddenly precisely because of the extent of the groupthink, the turnaround can happen very, very fast, just because the number of true believers is it's actually small. Yeah. Is small, mm -hmm. uh, though we just don't really reckon with it. Yeah, you get a preference cascade. A preference I, cascade, I exactly. Mean, I think, I don't know, maybe uh, Berlin in 1929 would be a more apt comparison to where we are now, because, I mean, we can talk about there being a brittle ideology, but 
I think if you look at like the actual kind of ruling class of, of Britain, they've basically completely divorced themselves from the actual people who voted them in. I mean, there's like, it's, it's quite evident that there is a two-tiered system um, with no real link left behind it. And I think, you know, as in 1929, the Weimar era, you know, you get these kind of dinner parties um, that spiral out into chaos. And meanwhile, you don't understand what's kind of fermenting in the streets and people are ready to start storming into banks and throwing notes into the air. Now, we're not at the point where the currency has become completely devalued, but I think, I think our trust in the people that are running this country and, and running most of the other Western countries as well has almost completely dissipated. Mm. Like, nobody's really pretending to have any faith in it anymore. So one of the things that Harrison pointed out is that you've, you're kind of a unique figure, I would say, actually, in the UK, because you've been building actual kind of institutions and, and counter little enclaves to kind of weather the storm. And I think that exists in America. I think we saw that a lot in the, at the American NatCon in Miami a little over a year ago. We saw less of it at the UK London NatCon. What advice would you give to people who are looking to do something similar in perhaps their own lives or, or professionally, you know, mm. for people like yourself who have the clout and the ability to do so? Mm. What, what are they not getting that you've tapped into? Well, uh, look, I, it's kind of you to say so. I mean, I, I, there's no magic formula and, and I never set out deliberately to be involved in this sort of infra pieces, you know, developing infrastructure. I sort of stumbled into it, really. I mean, I was a a lawyer in a former life and I stumbled into, I, I left law for academia hoping to retreat f to the quiet life <laughs> among books. You've done a terrible job. Du dusty, dusty books, <laughs> writing dusty books that nobody was ever going to read uh, quietly, you know, happily in my every tower for the rest of my life. That's, that was my, that was my dream. And, um, uh, but you know, you can ignore the, uh, you may not care what the dialectic thinks about you comrade, but, uh, uh, but uh, you may you may not care about the dialectic, uh, but the dialectic cares about you. Mm -hmm. This is the old is it the old Trotsky line. Mm. Uh, and I realised that you know there was no real hiding place that began I suppose ten years ago on campus. So it started all these canaries starting to sing on campus. In fact, I noticed this fifteen years ago. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm I'm a Christian, so I was aware of evangelical Christian unions get beginning to get it in the neck, you know, bank accounts frozen, banned from meeting on campus as early as 2007, you know, mm. 15 years ago. And I so I, I was, I've been aware of it for a long time. So I suppose I've taken an interest in it. And I suppose in, within the universe, you do have a lot more control of your own time. You don't really have people telling you what to do. And so you can develop a sort of a kind of career in intellectual entrepreneurship. And I suppose that's, that's how things have evolved um, and I'd be very lucky in the people I've met and the opportunities that have opened up and um, a lot of what I do simply would not be, I, I would not be able to do on my own, there's no doubt about that at all. But there are different sort of modes of counter-revolutionary engagement, you might say, that the kind of the sort of the organising horizon of, of, of what I do, there's sort of, think of three modes in particular, I mean there's the persuasion mode, the provocation mode and the power mode. Mm. So the persuasion mode is the sort of fairly standard mode that, you know, normally mode that we'd be used to of, you know, writing articles, mm. essays, engaging in podcasts, hosting distinguished speakers at universities to sort of give a slightly heterodox line on a particular topic. And that has its place. And I, I engage in that as much as I can. Um, involved in the scrutiny lectures, for example, at, at Oxford that have been running for, what, three years very successfully now, filling the Sheldonian to basically mm. to capacity with 
This year we had Douglas Murray, uh, Kevin Spacey doing a little tour. At the end, we had Sandy Stoddart, Lionel Shriver, Peter Thiel. That's been very, very important. That sort of persuasion mode is sort of strength in numbers and it gives a lot of right embedded in the heart of, the, of, of, of Oxford. Mm. There's provocation mode, and I think that is one that I've been trying to work through. I mean, not to be deliberately provocative, but there is a place within, you know, where you've got a degenerating um, intellectual culture uh, dominated by groupthink, then you've got to think of ways in which you can, as it were, prick the bubble. Um, you know, not, as I said, not kind of deliberately, not being too, too, too aggressive about it, but... You know, if, you're if you become aware of issues that are just sort of third rail, fourth rail issues that need to be addressed, then uh, you've got to sort of start to give them oxygen. So that's something I'm trying to work on a little bit more. Uh, we had the Peterson affair at Cambridge three or four years ago. That's, that, that was a sort of quite a radicalizing moment for me. Mm. That was so getting him back to Cambridge was provocative. And which was, that was last year, wasn't this it? This was, yes, end of Oof, end of 21, I think it yes. was. End of 21. He was cancelled in 2019. And then he, he did And then we, did, then we arranged that, that event at Gonville and Keys and then a big university lecture the following day. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and then finally there's power. And this is something which I know you've been discussing a lot on the, on the podcast. It's a big matter for debate yes. in America and it should be increasingly here. It ought to be. That is to say, we've got to be more comfortable, as Eric Kaufman, I think, mentioned on your podcast just a, just a few weeks ago. We've got to be more comfortable. Uh, when we've got power, actually exercising it. Yes. And that means building infrastructure, dismantling existing infrastructure, and building new infrastructure, and using parliament and and legislation, uh, clever lawfare to, to, mm. to achieve that. So, though, I mean, to answer Evan's question, those are the sort of three modes of engagement. I don't really have a particular preference for any of the three, and one should be open to all three of those. At the institutional level, I mean, I'm, I think I've, I might have, you know, I've, I've said this before to a number of people. I think sometimes think of myself in... You know, 15, the 1520s, where you've got sort of three strands of the Reformation yeah. opening up. You've got the um, you've got the sort of Luther, early Lutheran strand. You know, uh, um, universitas, societas, semper reformanda. Right? We can we can we can fix this. Mm. We can reform from within. We've got this institution's 800 years old. It's 2,000 years old. We can we we've, don't we mustn't abandon it. Mm. Uh, the sort of institutionalists. Um, and then the kind of the Calvinists are like, no, we've burn, it's, it, burn it down. It's over. Burn it down. Mm. Off we go. Salt the earth. Let's build. Go off and build Geneva. So these sort of parallel institutions we've got to build this time. There's a third group which I would actually put you guys in, which are the sort of the digital Anabaptists. Okay. Um, <laughs> so those who say we no, just we're fed up with institutions. Institutions are the problem. Institutions mm. are too easily captured. Institutions can't cope with disagreement and schism. Uh, they're too, all of conquest laws apply, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. Let's just do something. <clears throat> Networks have all kinds of advantages laid out very nicely in Neil Ferguson's brilliant uh, The Square and the Tower, if, you, if you're yes. familiar with that, yes. 2017. It has all, you know, it, yeah, there are disadvantages to networks, but there are enormous advantages to networks too. I've found increasingly in the last three or four years, they're much more nimble, they're much more adaptive, they can handle disagreement better. Mm -hmm. You simply break off the nodes or rearrange the nodes. They grow geometrically rather than arithmetically. Um, they're much easier to fund, um, much cheaper. You just need a few hubs here and there, important figures who are sort of relatively solid and, and permanent. Maybe the odd sort of anchoring institution, but that, you know, um, one that can, can, can operate independently, you know, that doesn't, you know, is, is, is where the link is purely contingent. 
Um, so those are the sort of, in, in terms of infrastructure, I think those are the three models. And I don't, look, I don't think it's a, you know, we, we've got a, in a sort of civilizational fight, we've got to got use to try all, all, try, try, try all yeah. of them. And yeah. so I have, I have a sort of foot in, in each one. <laughs> in each one. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm uh, fortunate to have a, a position at the University of Cambridge, a wonderful university, and a university whose intellectual culture is way, way better than m almost every single US university. Um, that yes, conservatives are in an, in a, a tiny, tiny minority, um, but you know, generally, I, you know, I don't feel that I'm constrained in what I can say. I don't, you know, there are, there are always you know, tantrums at the level of you know students writing, you know, hit pieces in 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 the, in, their, in the sort of local university newspapers and having you know Twitter storms and all that sort of thing, but. You know, the university itself has never told me that I can't say what I want to say. Mm. It's never um, forced me into a sort of a Maoist mea culpa, um, and and so I think actually things are pretty pretty healthy. I think one of the ironies is that it's often the case that in this current sort of cultural moment, it's the institutions that most often get into the headlines on in cancel culture and and and, and other other matters that are oddly the healthiest. Um, I mean, so think, take my faculty, the Faculty of Divinity, um, it, a colleague got uh, invited, Jordan Peterson, along and actually he, the, the process, the application, I think, was basically approved. I mean, he was, he was offered the visiting fellowship because, it, I think, because, you know, Divinity faculties are, tend to be a little bit more open mm. um, and a little bit less easy, to, it's less easy for the institution, intellectual cultures like that to disappear down the rabbit hole because they're non-negotiably anchored in particular normative, scriptural, traditions. intellectual traditions. Um, but of course, you know, the headlines were, doing the faculty is, is sort of, this is, the, this, is, this is the kind of the eye of the storm. This is the, yeah, sort of, this because, is the heart of the rot at Cambridge. Because the spotlight gets shone on when it. When in fact, you yeah. know, the idea that, that, that um, somebody like Peason would have been offered a visiting fellowship at the, sociology at the English faculty, faculty or the sociology, just, yeah, you know, yeah. course, I mean, the, the invite would not have landed on the, on the doormat, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that's to answer your question, Evan. I mean, that's how I, I've sort of stumbled into most, a lot of this by accident and you know, trying different things that, that work and are remaining within, happily within the University of Cambridge and you know, doing what I can to provide um, some balance and a refuge to undergraduates and graduates and mm. colleagues who want to have that kind of um, a, a, a sort of intellectual space where oxygen is given to issues that ought to be discussed but aren't. Um, it, it does seem to me as well, though, James, that we, because you say that we are at a civilizational moment, I think there'll be very few of our um, uh, audi few people among our audience who won't agree with that. Is there a risk at moments like this that we become too obsessed with being heterodox or too obsessed? It's interesting that you call us digital Anabaptists. Like one of one of one of my favourite nineteenth-century political philosophers was the Spanish um, chap um, Juan de Noso Cortés. Cortés, Cortés yeah. who, mm -hmm. who, who, who's um, no, I'm a big fan. Good. Okay, yeah. well, that, that's encouraging. Mm -hmm. Arguably, his central critique of liberalism was that it does just valorize what he called a discussing class, una, yeah. una classe discutidora. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by doing so, it loses sight of the ability to get things done. If, if, if our only value, if, yeah. our, if our only positive value as a movement mm -hmm. is a reflexive, a reflexive open-mindedness to all possible positive values, mm -hmm. then to what extent are we immo yeah. immobilizing ourselves and, and, and making us um, almost sealing our, our, our fate at the hands of people who are much more partial, much more passionate? Yeah. All the rest of it. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying there. I mean, a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, first, yes, you're 
right. I mean, if, if I've got if I've, I've understood you correctly, there is a massive opportunity cost incurred in getting sucked into the woke anti woke dialectic and forgetting the civilizational inheritance that we ought to be defending and defending by celebrating, mm. uh, not just sort of reactively um, fighting bar barbarians. Fighting, exactly. Yeah. And that's crucial. And that's why, you know, we're, you know, scrutiny lectures in Oxford or um, institutions like Ralston College, which I'm honoured to be involved with it in Savannah in Georgia, mm -hmm. you know, that they, they are, that's a parallel institution. It's, if you like, it's a Geneva, mm. but it's not, but it's a Geneva that is, that is not, as it were, breaking out in with, with a sort of new ideological outlook, but is recovering and retrieving the classical canon and classical pedagogy and is not getting too sucked into the political side of things. It's simply, mm. as it were, celebrating the fruits of the Hebraic and Hellenic and Christian civilizations. And, and that in itself, by the way, is a politically provocative act. Sure. You know, it, it, it gives it, people uh, an ideal to strive towards. That's right, exactly. And um, so, I mean, I think that's a, that's a very important, that's an important strand. Uh, in fact, I mean, it's just, we had Peter Thiel in Oxford just about a couple of weeks ago, and he gave a brilliant lecture on the diversity myth, you know, a little book he wrote it's a great book. in the early 90s, mm -hmm. where he you know, saw a lot of this, saw a lot of this coming. And his argument in the lecture was that, you know, was the opportunity cost worry? Um, you know, one way of explaining the sort of cultural wars is in terms of a kind of Nietzschean terms of ressentiment. You know, a kind of, you know, sort of maybe politics of envy. I think it's all the economically about. dispossessed and marginalized. But another way, Peter's way of thinking about it is, is in terms of divertissement, that diversity is a divertissement. It's, a, it's, it's like it's a, it's a sort it's of a diversion. It's a diversion. It's a, and it's, and it's almost, almost a conscious diversionary strategy to um, drug us and anesthetize us, mm. really, mm. Uh, in the way that Marx thought that the, the function of religion was uh, to sort of do you, do you distract agree with his, from... his thesis that a lot of this is just a uh, cope from low economic growth and low productivity, low innovation? Well, uh, no. And I don't know if he actually says that there's a causal connection there, that, that, that it's a sort of... Um, Congruence of interests. Yeah. And I, and I actually think, you know, and I know there's disagreement on the right about this. I mean, I tend to... On, as on most things, I tend to side with Eric Kaufman, who, <laughs> who thinks, you know, who's crunched the data here mm. and really just doesn't think there is a tight causal link between, say, um, lower access to home ownership, lower, lower home, home, home ownership and, and, and weaker participation in the market among, mm. the, among the Zoomers and um, the kind of ideological frenzies that, that they're getting caught up in. I, mean, yeah. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not... I'm not a social scientist, but I, the, the, the case I've seen him make, I find pretty dispositive, but mm. maybe you disagree. And maybe it's different in no, America. I, I've had this conversation with Eric many times, yeah. actually, who, who I, I love. Yeah. And he is very kind of analytically minded and he and quantitative, True. whereas True. I've read way too many books in psychoanalysis. And I kind of think <sighs> that it's more that when the economy gives up and you're not progressing there, you have to kind of find and make new ground yeah. in the realm of the ideological. Right. So liberalism goes into a massive tailspin. I mean, I think, you know, basically Western liberalism works so long as the, you know, the graph keeps going up. But as soon as that's done, you have to find some other way to, to advance because the one thing people can't ever stand is stagnation. Do you think, so is your take that there's a top-down, um, there's sort of top-down traffic there, that, that is to say, 
this is a kind of regime mechanism to keep people happy uh, despite, you know, even though things are sort of looking shaky economically, or do you think it's a sort of grassroots sort of cry for it's, I think investing that, life for the sort of meaning that is not not available now that the GDP line's going down? It's both. It's I think the top-down aspect of it is that we have like kind of a kleptocracy now, which is basically that the high-class people can sell out their sons, daughters, and grandchildren um, by shipping things away and, you know, becoming more globalized and mm. becoming these kind of world citizens. So it becomes a useful vehicle it also distracts from the class aspect mm -hmm. of it. So it's mm -hmm. like focus on race and gender and don't pay attention to how much wealthier I'm getting. Mm. Um, and then the bottom up aspect is, you know, as people kind of, as a result of actually that top down action, as people lose the ability to see that, you know, their children's lives will get better or, or, or that they're gonna be able to progress meaningfully into the future, they have to find a new kind of mechanism that they can, that they can then progress on. If it's not going to be money, it is going to be it's going to be ideology, and I think that works to a degree, but it, it spins out pretty quickly, which also is kind of what happened mm. in the Weimar days, mm. to be quite honest. Mm. What it wouldn't explain, and this is what this is what Eric this is why Eric is in favor of generally speaking of decoupling economics from culture when it comes to political opinion formation is it wouldn't explain I mean it's, I mean do you remember well I, I, I was gonna say do you remember as though I was around I wasn't around but I'm told that in the 80s people were it was all the rage about Japan being the next big economy Japan was booming yeah. and all the rest of it economically says I mean Japan has been stagnating ever since and it's not seeing these kinds of cultural skirmishes which we're seeing in the West which would rather um, you know, would, would, would throw into doubt the question uh, the, whether this has to do with you know, stagnation, economic stagnation, meaning that liberalism has to go into some kind of tailspin. Uh, Eric is much more uh, partial, and I agree with him on this as well, to the, um, to the, to, to the notion that, that this has very important demographic conditions. I mean, like Black Lives Matter is not exactly thriving in Japan. It is th thriving in, 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 in England, and, and, um, and so are all sorts of other um, highly ethnocentric movements that are almost bound to happen when you have extremely high pre unprecedented rates of immigration mm. without assimilation people mm. people kind of revert back to their tribal categories and they, mm. they, they it becomes impossible for us collectively to think in terms of what's britain's national interest and we have to think as we always are thinking in terms of well what's what's the what's the black interest here what's the muslim right. interest here what's the asian interest mm. here like you get more of that mm. going on and japan mm. being an incredibly homogenous country mm. doesn't have any of that it wouldn't explain much of the gender stuff and it wouldn't explain the, like the obsession with sexuality and the obsession mm. with non-binaryness but i think it would mm -hmm. explain a lot of the racial identity mm, politics i don't know i mean camille paglia makes this point and douglas murray has echoed it in recent years that when you kind of reach this like late stage, like sacking the capital um, era of the empire, people start really freaking out about the mm. gender thing because it's like you know, kind of all rules have gone out the window. Mm. Hey, first uh, first transsexual surgery was done in uh, Weimar Berlin, mm. in, like mm. 1928, I believe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that's when it, it was the Institute for Sexual Schaffen or something like mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. My German is abandoning me yes. over the last year. Um, that's when that all started. That's mm -hmm. when it all came up, mm -hmm. and then. You know, John Money popularized it mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. in America, really in Canada. Um, he pulled all his stuff out of German academia, right. all yeah. of it. Yeah, there is a recurring phenomenon. I mean, I think it's is it J. O. Umson's the Oxford scholar of the late nineteen thirties, Sex and Culture, Unwin, J. D. Unwin, I think it is, and also Carly Zimmerman, Family and Civilization. They make the point that it's a hallmark of late stage empire, certainly the case with Rome, certainly the case with um, the Ottoman Empire, that you have, you know, extreme forms of sexual decadence, mm -hmm. gender confusion, etc, etc, mm -hmm. 
obviously we're seeing this in a very different, you know, this is, it's now kind of married to a sort of technology that can reinforce the delusions uh, mm. over, over gender in a, in a um, irreversible uh, and, and barbaric way. But yeah, it's a common, it's, it's, it's a, that sort of, it's, it's not something that is completely without mm. historical precedent. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a difficult a difficult nut to crack. There are so many different factors operative, but I think Harrison, your point that yeah, look, multiculturalism is a recipe for social the collapse of social trust. It's a recipe for, as it were, a kind of balkanization mm-hmm. of a nationhood. Um, you know, I'm been involved in the national conservative movement, mm. uh, national conservatism movement over the last year quite intensely here in the UK. And you know, the central point we're trying to make is that a the spirit of nationalism, a commitment to nationhood, is is not um, shouldn't be the strongest political kind of affection that we have. In fact, in my view, it's the weakest form of concrete attachment that one can have. Um, uh, uh, beyond which things just get abstract and anemic, you know, once, you know, just, just, but that, that is, that's got to be the, the sort of the organizing horizon. Mm. And that has to be, you know, that we have to have ways in which we can inculcate that, that sort of national spirit. Often they'll be a little, they'll be, they'll be pretty crude. Historically, Remembrance Sunday uh, and the two minute silence has been for I think for as long as you know for as long as I can remember at least until this year has been one of those rare moments in our yeah. sort of secular national liturgy where there has been this sort of widespread agreement that we would and that yeah, that we would come together as a nation even though you know now as any well, a third of the country has no idea what what we're doing <laughs> with the poppies <laughs> and the two yeah. minute silence and yes. so. And so we're losing that sort of thing, and, and we're losing the battle primarily in the schools, not not really in the universities. Actually, I think by the time the thing, the universities, the, by the and there's another point there. Another point, Eric. Uh, Eric has made yes. that really, and, and I and I think he's absolutely right, just from mm. first-hand experience, but also from looking at the data. Mm. You know, by 18, you know, a person's outlook is pretty fully formed. People come yeah. to universities armed with pre-existing prejudices. And, and so, really, and the only, right the that, only yeah. person doing anything about this at the school level is Catherine Babel Singh. And I was so pleased that she came and spoke at the National Conservatism Conference and she spoke at the ARC convention just a couple of weeks ago. And she is, she is absolutely on this. She, mm-hmm. she gets it and she's calling out both the left and the right for not, not attending to the importance of inculcating a common culture. Well, this is the another thing, is, isn't it? I mean, uh, this is really important. So the, 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 the main things that I tend to locate it in, the, uh, the rise of the Great Awakening, or whatever on earth you want to call it, is, uh, is I, I would say that it, um, I've, I've already mentioned the demographic conditioning factors, which I think are incredibly important, particularly when it comes to, you know, uh, like racial identity politics. Uh, um, but I also think one thing that, that I think is really important as well is that uh, Conservatism is, is about nothing if it's not about the, the, like the, the transmission of customs and habits and, uh, and, and ideas and beliefs and patterns of behavior and all of these sorts of things. And when one generation uh, abdicates that responsibility in favor of a kind of liberal individualism, everyone is free to decide their, their own values. Once everyone is reduced to, so to speak, an, an atomistic scrap of paper and that becomes the prevailing the ruling philosophy, all of a sudden those individual scraps of paper, children growing up, are very... Um, are, are very liable 
to get swept up in whatever grand ideological schemes happen to be the, the fashions of the hour, all this sort of thing. And so, if 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 you have an elite, a political elite, an educational elite, and all this, which is which is uh, on the conservative side, I'm talking about, which is so sort of obsessed with the, the, the economy and the GDP growing that they completely neglect the cultural battle, the, the territory, and they stop transmitting those basic values. And you don't give young people something to believe in strongly. You shouldn't be surprised when they're willing to buy any old nonsense mm -hmm. that's being peddled by, by activists in schools and all the rest of it. And, and the only conservative MP I've really noticed pay any attention to this problem is Miriam Case. She's mm -hmm. the only one who talks about the, the way in which our children are being relentlessly indoctrinated mm. in schools. Yeah. Other, other conservatives, as far as I can tell, don't seem particularly willing to go anywhere near it. I mean, my brother, sorry to go on a little bit, mm. but just, I think it's really illustrative of the point. My brother was born in 2009, so mm. he's only ever gone to school mm. with a conservative government. Mm. And you wouldn't know that to look at his curriculum. Yeah. I mean, he was learning Tudor history recently, and I asked him some questions about it. I said, do you know who John Calvin is? Do you know who Martin Luther is? Do you know?" I was asking him about all the key figures of 16th century European history, and, he's, and the, his whole lesson had been devoted to this sub-Saharan um, trumpeter called John Blank, who'd been in the court of Henry VIII. That's <laughs> all he knew about 16th century British history, uh, 16th century European history. Ooh. And so it's, it's very dispiriting to think Conservatives have had an influence. The Conservative mm. Party has had an influence on what my brother might have been being taught in yeah. schools, and yet he hasn't been taught what he needs to be taught. Well, yes and no. I mean, they they've been in they've been in office, but have they been in power? Um, could they have been in power? I mean, what could they have done differently in in twenty ten? Um, I think you know. I, I'm I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I an don't want to. Yeah. I'm not an apologist for the Tory Party, but. You know, 2010 to 2015 was uh, the electoral, the, the parliamentary arithmetic was such that it was very difficult to make any major, major reforms mm. to the Blair infrastructure. Uh, and I think also in that period, I remember, you know, nobody was really too worried about the Equality Act. It was just Equality Act 2010 was just updating the Equality Act 2006. And then there was a sort of sense of, you know, there was still that kind of lingering, slight lingering end of history vibe. There was it, the worry, the worries were economic, the apocalypse was a financial one, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was all the bankers' fault, it was the 1%, it was the elite. There wasn't this sense of, we, 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 we didn't see it coming. We didn't see 2012 coming, 2013, 2014. I only started really seeing it happening on the ground in Oxford, you know, late 2014. It was starting to break a bit in 2013. 2015, you then had this 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 surprise victory of Cameron, then this forced into calling the Brexit referendum, then Brexit takes over and dominates mm. everything. 2016, chaos. Mm. 2017 election, chaos. And then the battle. <laughs> and so you've got this sort of constant, you know, I understand why nothing has been done any anywhere really mm. in the last in the last 13 years. I mean I I don't know what could have been done differently. We know and I know this from various you know, battles on the academic freedom front, where we actually have had serious success. I mean, we, we've, it's okay, maybe in the grand scheme of things, a relatively small success, but it is a, the passing of the Freedom of Speech Higher Education Act 2023. Right. It was a clear manifesto commitment in 2019 that persisted across the last th three prime ministers and, and has and been delivered. Done, yeah. And it did get done. And I think there are, there are lessons we can learn from how we managed to get it done. Um, but reform of secondary education is, and you know, curricular content. I mean, I mm. think there are simple ways. So there, I think there are simple fixes. For example, I mean, it's you know, it is already the law under the 1996 Education Act, Section 405, 406, I think, that teachers are not allowed to present plainly partisan 
curricular content without mm-hmm. explaining that it is partisan mm-hmm. and without presenting the other side. I think part of the problem is that you know when that was passed by the in the dying days of the Tory government, major government in 1996, nobody really uh, there was no statutory definition as to quite what political partisanship involved. Mm. Now the Department for Education has done its best, well maybe not its best, but it's you know, provided guidance to, to explain <laughs> that you know support for BLM or the latest sort of rainbow craze is plainly, you know, is ideologically freighted. Because they tend to hide behind the idea that oh, well, it's only political if it's party political. Precisely. That's the way that, yeah. well, and, and I think a lot of them genuinely believe, I mean, I think if you just took a, a, a oh, yeah. straw poll of the National Union of Teachers, yes. it would yeah. not cross their mind that it would be wrong. The, the, yeah. that going on a pride march is an ideological act, is an mm. expression of an ideological... I've, I've said on this program before, is that they think that going on a pride march or going on a BLM rally is the equivalent of being against kicking kittens yeah. in the face. Mm. Like, Absolutely and, and so right. If you think that, then it, there's nothing ne- necessarily political about that because it's so they they they, they shroud it in such moralizing terms. Absolutely right. And yeah. uh, this is this you know, is a line I've I've um, trotted out before. But the, you know, one of the problems with groupthink is that wrong think becomes evil think. Yeah, yeah. That you know, once a position, once a sort of minority position is, once you reach a certain tipping point, mm. um, a certain sort of point in the preference cascade, you actually. It, it becomes very, very easy to simply demonise the minority view as being simply immoral, and so that the, so that the dominant view is simply morally irrefutable, mm. and 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 therefore not even in the uh, not even sort of touching the domain of politics. Mm. And so that act has been completely toothless. Just as in fact, I mean, you know, we got this through the Speech Higher Education Act through, but in fact, you know, academic freedom has been on the statute books has been pretty well protected since 1986, since the the big battles that Thatcher fought with the universities in the 1980s. It just, you know, it needed a little bit of updating. This new act creates, puts positive duties on the universities to promote academic freedom more than they promote uh, other, well, other values. Um, But, and it creates a directorate, which is very important and, and gives that directorate significant executive and and uh, judicial quasi-judicial powers mm-hmm. but you know a lot of these laws you know it's not been a problem you know it, it's not been a question of the conservatives failing because they haven't you know pushed the right mm. laws through it's a basically a sort of blob culture problem an elite culture problem yeah um, it's, it's an anarcho tyranny problem right where it's that i mean people i i hear in britain and maybe this is a cultural thing a lot people will say things like nothing can be done like, no, no, nothing will be done. That's very different than nothing can be done. There's very little that the UK could not do as mm. like a major first world power in its own, within its own borders or abroad mm. if the political will was there. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think you're seeing in America now and actually some other countries in Europe as well, um, you're, you're seeing kind of a counter elite of people who are recognizing this kind of anarcho-tyranny dynamic, the rules are not fair, that the battle of... That are the marketplace of ideas is kind of rigged against them. There's a finger on the scales. I'm thinking of people like Chris Rufo, um, and who are fighting back in like a, a, a very tangible, serious, dare I say, Machiavellian sort of way. And it's, it's been highly effective. Mm-hmm. And I think there's enough people with brains to do it, and the, the power, and even the money in the UK to do something like that. But it hasn't really crystallized or galvanized yet well I, I i well i think you're right and and you're right to we we're, we're right to think of the problem as an elite problem and we're right to start thinking about the solution as a solution that only a counter elite 
can bring about. Mm. So to that extent, you know, I'm, I'm not a populist. I, I, I appreciate many populists and I seek, we should, I think that any counter elite should seek to harness and express and bring about the will of the people yeah. where it is not being... You saw where I was going with this, yeah. Right. Um, one question I, I really want you to answer that for us though is that you know, you're, you're in academia, you're, you're in deep in these circles. How do you go about identifying people who would be a good member of that new counter elite? How do you? What do you look for? Well, I, I don't go. I don't go looking um, actively for them. Most most come to me. Most many many students write to me. Many people from outside the university write to me, um, and we you know I, I get to know them. Uh, we we have a lunch at our home, a Sunday salon every Sunday in Cambridge, and any student who wants to come can come and uh, whatever their ideological background or politics and they you know a lot of them have not been uh, away from home for long periods before and so and I remember at university myself and in fact at boarding school myself going to you know other you know family homes during when one was at school and and and, and so we, we provide that sort of form a kind of community a sort of home home from home um, and so we I get to meet a lot of wonderful people brilliant people. Um, and I think um, talent's pretty easy to spot. I mean, there's just a lot of it if you're in a place like Cambridge. You know, you're just, it's sort of selecting, on the whole, it's selecting the best and brightest of, of each generation, especially at the graduate level, where there you've got really, mm. you know, at the undergraduate level, you're getting the best and brightest of Britain. At the un at graduate level, you know, Cambridge is regularly topping the university, the world university charts. You're getting some of the best brains in the, on the planet um, passing through. So, um, you know, really, I mean, I, I think at that sort of, at that level, sort of early 20s, mid 20s, you know, people sort of are still kind of learning, the, learning the ropes. Um, but I will try and find roles for them if we're putting together a big conference or a convention. I always I put on lots of events involved in, you know, various little guerrilla projects. Um, and I don't have the time to invest in, in all of them. Um, but I will try and mentor them where I can or at least or, or what I've taken to doing more often is to f identifying skilled mentors you know impressive young lads impressive young ladies who would you know take a young person under their wing and sort of nudge them and so on um, and uh, so yeah I mean I think we, there's a certain sort of I think there needs to be a certain openness at the lower levels you know with, uh, an openness to having a pretty messy coalition uh, this this sort of counter elite that is that is beginning to emerge, actually, you know, in ordinary times would be tearing strips off each other mm. <laughs> on all kinds of different issues, and I know I still find it odd, you know, sitting at the you know breaking bread with people wildly different corners of the ideological spectrum, but uh, but but you know where we're actually supporting each other because we recognise that there is a more kind of you know bigger civilizational conflict to be fought. And, you know, Evan, you mentioned, you know, Rufo's successes. He is really, I mean, he's, he's an exemplar in many, many ways. But I think we're securing some victories here in the UK, which are not being secured in the US. I mentioned the 
victories on academic freedom, the academic freedom front. There's obviously the turnaround, the sort of turf island turnaround. Um, you know, gender critical feminists here in the UK have fought an extraordinary battle, what, maybe a, a, mm. a dozen, two dozen of them at most. Yes. So there are, I mean, I think, and that, that's a, those are grassroots movements. Or think of the Free Speech Union work that Toby Young has been doing. You, you, you look across the West and you think, are there, I mean, yeah, there's Rufo's at a one-man band, and there may be other certain similar things happening, American Moment and other sort of, I, know, I think NatCon in the US, certainly. But actually, I think we've got a lot to be proud of. Oh, yeah. um, and, but, but we've got to catalyze it, we've got to, we've got to give it new energy, and we've got to look for new sort of, new, new um, uh, kind of pieces of infrastructure and sort of pop-up, um, pop-up movements like the FSU or Sex Matters or, or the various academic freedom initiatives. The various, you know, and I, and I think you know we need to be open to that, and um, it, I think it's a fundamentally conservative way of, th- you know, these are little platoons. These are these li- these are Burkean platoons, but probably not quite what Burke had That's in not mind. What he, not what he meant at all. <laughs> not what he meant at all. But and yet and yet it is in the sense yeah. that these are not kind of top-down solutions. These are solutions that are kind of the expression of the body politic. They're expressions of civil society. Mm-hmm. They're, for, they're just slightly odd. They're not the kind of established institutions. They're not kind of guilds. They're not customary. They're not customary. Yeah. Well, they are and they're not. I mean, in a way, they are reactions to attacks on the customary. customary. Yeah. And so they are sort of, yes, they're, they're ad hoc. They build themselves on the template of the customary, but they're not themselves That's customary. right, that that's way, right. That way and, and I think what's missing in all of this is a um, is a guiding grand récit, what Lyotard wanted to wanted to reject a guiding grand mm. narrative a a story and this is the contentious point that I mean you were right to say earlier Harrison that you know it's nothing is, is it's it's a sort of emblematically conservative to be focused on the traditional and, and customs and conventions and so on. And I'd say, y- yes, but one needs to be more than, it, it needs to be more than simply conserving tradition for the sake of it. It needs to be more than mm. mere ancestor worship. That you need, you need, you need to have, like, I, I agree with you, 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 the, you need to have an understanding of, of, of what, is, what is good that gave those things the, uh, the life which they uh, should uh, have uh, preserved. Absolutely. And, 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 and I don't want to go down a religious rabbit hole now, but, but I do... I am, I, and I think it's very, very, it's going to be more and more important for us, uh, for those of us who want to see genuine, lasting, mm. positive cultural change that's not simply reactionary, to be able to defend traditions and conventions and customs ultimately by reference to justifying them as expressions of some, um, some albeit contingent, but truth-tracking pursuit of the beautiful and the good and reality itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it, I give a Christian um, framing to those capital T transcendence, transcendentals, others, you know, it's compatible with other ways of construing it. You might be kind of a Platonist, you might be a, even a Stoic, I suppose. But in the end, you're going to have to sort of, I think we're going to have to start um, articulating a defence in terms of um, in, term, in terms of some fixed in ter- objective in terms of universal, way that the world is a universal idiom that gives sense to all of these particular things. Yes, an idiom that is anchored in 
in, in, in the real yes. and the good and, and the true. What did you make of Ion's latest essay where, I mean, another new atheist has bit the dust here and she's come out as maybe not a, a believer in, you know, like God is real, resurrection actually yeah. happened, but in like being a cultural Christian, you might want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I, there was a debate about this a year or two ago, wasn't there, about, you know, all this, you know, Christians, many Christians will be sniffy about mm-hmm. cultural Christianity. And I, you know, I share that concern, you know, that, that there are, I've met so many, so many friends who say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a flying buttress on the church. That's, you what, know. that's what Churchill said I, about it's it. It's Churchill said about it. Roger yeah. Scruton is like that. Douglas Murray, Tom Holland is... I support the church from outside. From outside. And, yeah. and you know, that's fine. But if everyone is just supporting a structure from without... <laughs> no one's inside it. The thing is going to collapse. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless, I'm grateful that they're there. Yes. And in fact, you know, in many ways, tactically, they play an incredibly important role because they're not seen as party pre. I mean, mm. I think this is the great... Mm. the great power of of Jordan Peterson that he's always you know he's sort of doing this sort of delicate tango this dance in the borderlands between belief and unbelief yeah and he's moved the whole kind of sterile new atheist sort of angry new atheist rhetoric on so much further forward and actually it was very moving to be sitting in that room and listening to Ian um speak uh, express herself, and, and, and in many ways, I think that that article was really a crystallisation mm-hmm. of, of her yeah. of her panel remarks at at the art conference. And you know, yes, at, at one level, it's a it's a sort of ref- reflexive um, uh, uh, reaching out for a kind of the stability and the the old order mm-hmm. of Christendom, um, and yet at the same time, there was something profoundly almost sort of you know viscerally metaphysical about the remarks because they were prefaced with the most sort of clear-eyed description of the barbarities of October the 7th that is to say it's almost a sort of you know this is is something metaphysical about the horror that was witnessed on that day and the reaction and, and horrors that reminded her of her of her upbringing, and she has clearly come to see that uh, secular accounts or evolutionary accounts, Darwinian, Dawkinsian accounts of evil, what is it that Dawkins says in Unweaving the Rainbow in 1996, you know, at the bottom of the universe, there is neither good nor evil, DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. You know, on that, on that new atheist paradigm, a, 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 a pr- giving a sort of a proper, the proper kind of phenomenology of the moral horror of mm. events like October the 7th, it, it's just difficult for us to cope with a purely evolutionary just-so story. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't know. I know, you know there's a lot of cynicism. There's been some cynicism in the response to Ian's piece for Unheard, which was, what, a couple of days ago now. Um, but I think we'll look back on it as a, as a you know, quite a significant moment and i wouldn't be surprised as a friend of mine texted me this uh, just uh, just this morning i think this is, you know you're saying people are going losing their minds over ian sort of becoming just a cultural christian but that i wouldn't be at all surprised that actually there has been some damascene moment for her mm. but that you know it's just too you can't express it like that it's very difficult to yeah. to, to to express that something that personal and do to do it so quickly and suddenly um, and so, I mean, my goodness, it's, it's the more of that uh, we can, 
the more of that, the more that phenomenon um, emerges, the better, as far as I'm concerned. If only it were the case, that said, that there was a church, um, a national church, that was set up to welcome and embrace these um, people, people for whom you know, whose faith is is coming alive. And I've lost count of the number of friends I've spoken to, particularly over COVID, actually, uh, over the last two, three years, who've who've you know for, for one reason or another often through very very different routes have come back to or have stumbled towards faith and have wanted to read about it they can't, i mean i'm a do philosophy of religions so i get these emails the whole time and i try and answer them as fully mm -hmm. as i can every time so i have these sort of various reading lists for people at sort of different levels but I, I mean you know that there's been a massive uptick in in that and some sort of quite influential people the one thing i can't do when they ask they say well where should i go to church i don't yeah. know what to do yeah. i look at wobbly welby and i look at francis going mad in in, in rome and i just don't know what to do um and i don't have an answer for them mm. the digital um, anabaptists perhaps well yeah that's what i think I and mean, we need to start building the catacombs and we need because christians certainly need to get out of i think of the constantinian mode of thinking about christianity it's so it's, particularly if you're an anglican you know you're just part of this weird leftist theocracy uh, <laughs> that is the church of england and you you know it's, it's difficult to know difficult to know what to do but it's difficult to realize that it's over mm. the church of england is 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 to all intents and purposes at least at least it seems to be that seems to be the direction of travel in just in terms of raw raw numbers um and so it's difficult for christians to start to think of themselves as you know being you know, being better off in something like a catechism, even if it's a digital catechism. Mm. And we, here we get to sort of Rod Dre's Benedict Option, and, and which I, you know, I fully support and I don't accept the misreadings and criticisms that that, that book's attracted the, to the effect that it's just, a, you know, it's, it's, it's a manifesto for withdrawal and yeah, retreat. An escapism. It's yeah. not that at all. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I think we, we need to be both, I mean, I think Rod's work has, has been, you know, there is incredibly useful as a sort of great sort of handbook manuals for how Christians should go about things. But I don't think there's a massive difference really for, you know, secular refugees from the revolution. They too need to be thinking about, you know, in, in, you know, in similar ways. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, that, that there's a lot, there's an awful lot going on. There's an incredibly exciting moment to be alive, exciting moment to be involved in all these different mm. Battles. Think how boring it would have been if we'd been, you know, if this was the late 1980s or, you know, 90s. I mean, I love the 90s. I grew up in the 90s, a teenager in the 90s, but, you know, nobody ever talked about it. Nobody cared about anything really back then. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, know? I don't know. Though, so I, I, I can't know for sure because I was, I was only born in the, late, in the late 90s. Maybe I would have enjoyed it. But I, I want to come back briefly just before we finish up on something that you said earlier, which struck me as interesting. And it, it, it I know you don't. You say you're not an apologist for the Conservative Party and, and, and all the rest of it. I'm not saying that you are, but you seem you seem to be saying that you, um, explaining their failures in terms of forces over which they had minimal control. And the thing, and I suppose that's my point in a way that they didn't think they didn't re re regard themselves as custodians, as trustees of anything. Like when, and, and in a weird way, pe the, the, the most far-sighted governments in at the moment that we've had in recent history have been the left-wing Labour ones because they understand that you it's not just enough to I mean the new Labour understood this extremely well you want to make constitutional changes you want to make cultural changes because these things are for keeps you're thinking about like in the, in the 1997 Labour manifesto I think they said something as audacious as 
for the next century, New Labour wants to be the political arm of the British people. Like mm. Thinking in terms of this is going to be a Labour century. The 20th century was a Tory century. This is going to be a Labour century. In many ways, the Labour Party thinks much more far-sightedly about these mm. things than the Conservatives because they're just focused on the weekly news flare-ups or just because they're focused on the GDP going up this year. Mm. They don't see themselves as custodians over anything. They've lost, mm. they've lost that mentality. And, at many, and, and, and in many other cases as well, they, they want to fight, um, they want to engage the left in, in its own terms. Mm. I, I, I tear my hair, not that I have anything against there being ethnic minority um, ministers or women prime ministers, but they, I tear my hair out when they start saying things like, we've got a more diverse cabinet than you do, Labour, ever did Labour. Mm. We've, we've, got, we've had three female prime ministers, You've, you haven't had any, that sort of did thing. Did David Cameron write an essay saying that when he came into number 10, it was too white and male? As, as, I'm pretty sure it's, it's very possible, yeah. but this is the point that like you constantly if you're winning on the left's own mm. terms Then you're in, in a larger sense. You're losing monumentally and the conservatives. They, they, they seem completely incapable of of um, Appreciating the task that is before them mm. and I, I, I want this is the, the question I, I want to put to you Is it possible to cure them of that as a as, an, as a political organism without? having them effectively wiped out in 2024 mm. and plunging them into an identity crisis so profound that they're forced to grapple with these questions in a way that mm. they clearly haven't been doing mm. for 13 years, whether mm. you think there are contingent reasons for that or not. Mm. Mm. Well, lots of interest. I mean, lots of things one could say on that. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the, the party as it stands is toast. I mean, I, I, I you know, I... Until recently, I thought there may be the possibility of a hung parliament, but I, but I think it's looking... And look, you know, 10 months is a long time in politics, mm -hmm. assuming a sort of October, um, September-October election 2024. But, um, you know, I think we're looking at... I, I think a 1997-level wipeout is not um, unlikely. Mm. Um, and I think that will catalyse the identity crisis that you describe. Now, it, it's not clear to me what the, config, the what the composition of the rump will be. Yes, I that's mean, important. That which will be very important. My understanding is from people in the know that the expectation is that it'll be a fairly proportionate reduction, so that you'll see oh, roughly the, really. roughly comparable uh, uh, constellation of factions in terms of you know roughly the same proportions. Um, in which case, you know, it's it's going to be. Well, it's going to be harder. Who knows? It could be, you know, it could be a Penny Mordaunt, Suella Braverman, or Penny Mordaunt, Kevin Badnock showdown. Um, who knows what would happen at the, the grassroots? But what, what the you know, the ideal would be for the Tory right, uh, the Tory right to get a to settle on a figure as leader, and for there to be to put in place the best policy and personnel operation of any opposition in living memory mm. from 2024 to 2029. And that means organization uh, on a level that you know, we've not seen before. Mm. You know, I think the support is there. I think the, the public support is there. I think the ideas are there. The emerging ecosystem uh, fostering a kind of counter elite is there. There's actually a lot of the intellectual energy is on is on the right, it's not, it's, it's not on the left. Or it's, or it's in this sort of, sort of slightly murky messy post-liberal landscape mm. which in, in effect i think is you know there are there are sort of left-leaning elements in it particularly on economics 
but I think broadly speaking, the energy of the sort of kind of counter elite is very much on the right. So I think there's, there will be everything to play for in 2028, 2029. Labour is going to be inheriting a, uh, a recession. Um, uh, uh, the ongoing consequences of mass unchecked migration without any, uh, any idea at all of how to, how to assimilate. Um, and it's going to be doubling down on all of the divisive woke policies that are mm -hmm. going to um, continue to corrode public trust in the common good. So, you know, it's going to be a dark decade, I think. Mm. Um, but I don't see any alternative than trying to recover the heart of the Tory party and to return it to its roots and to invest it with energy, with new people, with young people. Um, and with a very, very clear policy agenda, not just a policy agenda, but drafted bills mm. that are ready, ready that to are, go, that are oven ready yes. <laughs> in 2029. And we mm. don't discuss, we don't, they're clear manifesto commitments and then bang, get rid of the public sector yes. equality duty on arrival. Yes. We toughen up the education. Which, which they, which the Conservatives expanded, by the way, in 2017. I mean, just, it's worth mentioning as a, as a detail. I think right. one, one thing too is that Sorry. the Tory party needs to get, and the Americans are already on this, with their like people like Vivek or some of the new candidates coming up. Right. Um, they need to get way more confident in their use of propaganda. Yeah. Call it marketing if you if that makes you yeah. feel better, but that's what yeah. it is. I'm using it yeah. in the actual original Propag use of the word. Propagate yeah. your message. No, no, but like, yeah. yeah. Be unapologetic and get your message out. And like, it's like they're announcing like, uh, whatever, like people coming into the cabinet now. They look like baseball trading cards. It's terrible. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah, I mean, I'd say a note of caution there, namely that, you know, it's easy to get sucked into a kind of social media game. And you know, I think one of the problems with the DeSantis campaign at the moment is that it's it's relied a oh, little God. bit too much on trendy, oh, clever, clever. I mean, they, they fight an amazing meme war, but uh, is, is victory in the meme war actually the defeat in terms of the opportunity costs mm. of not actually attending to the people who you know, never have no idea what Twitter is, and, you know, the actual voters. And, you know, are, are meme wars just, as it were, consolidating your, your, Existing kind of, support, your, your, your digital base yeah. and that basically, you know, um, you know, unusually, yes. you know, committed um, followers on, on social media. And so, but, but no, I agree, Adam, you're absolutely right. The messaging needs to change. And there's got, we've got to sort of get rid of the kind of cuddly, softly, 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 um, you know, we're, we're, we're labor, but with a bit more, uh, you know, we've got labor's heart, but with a, you know, a bit more brain kind of thing. I mean, there's <laughs> got to be, there's got to be something, yes. there's something radical, mm. uh, as, as, as Thatcher succeeded successfully presented in 79 with a lot of people behind her. There were a lot of ideas going around. She relied and outsourced a lot of her thinking to people like Keith Joseph and others. Yes. And as Blair, uh, did between 1994 and 1997. That's that's what we need to be thinking for about in the 24 to 29 period in the second half of the decade. And then maybe 29 can be our Anes Mirabilis. James, it's been such a pleasure having you on Deprogrammed. Thank you so much for coming on. Evan, thanks as ever. You've been watching Deprogrammed. Make sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment if you wish, and we shall see you on the next one. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, May I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, 
invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.